Construction. An industry ripe for disruption. An industry whose problems can be traced back to one thing cash flow. This show challenges the slow payment culture in construction. We'll show you how you can get paid faster, improve your cash flow, and create more wealth through efficient management of your cash. The faster cash flows, the faster wealth grows. This is the Construction Cash Flow Show. And here is your host, Stuart Davidson. Hello, and this is another episode of the Construction Cash Flow Show. And I'm delighted to have a really great guest today, Kevin Wright. And he's, he runs, he's a trainer, a mentor, he runs Training Screams, the uh, Ninja Investor Property uh, Training about recycling your cash he's got a master mastermind group he speaks a lot around property and he's also a columnist for the blue bricks magazine hmm. so welcome kevin how are well, you hi thank you very much here hi how you doing yeah really well thanks yeah, so much. it's really great to have you on it's a real privilege and i know our listeners are really uh, you know this will really benefit our listeners as well hmm. and so kevin just tell us a bit about yourself about your background what you're up to and a little bit about your journey Sure. Okay. I've been in a property. I did my first property deal back in 1983. Um, wow. And uh, just a simple buy, refurb and sell. So bought a wreck, did it up, sold it, banked the cash. And that's still never a bad, bad um, outcome today. Mm, yeah. What got me started that? Um, my, my mum bought me a book for a birthday present, Property Renovation Profits. And it wasn't all the wasn't a glossy book, you know, Amazon didn't exist. It wasn't in a bookshop. I've no idea where she got it from. In fact, neither she now, because I've asked her and she said, oh, I don't know, love. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she, but, um, but yeah, read it and it just mm -hmm. told you how to make money from renovating property and selling it. And um, so I, I did some of those flips, as they now call them, <clears throat> and thought, oh, I don't know, I might, I might actually buy a wreck do it up and rent, keep it and rent it out, uh, which I did. And then a, a bit of a while after that, I thought, hang on a minute, I'm renting this house out to a tenant. If I rented it out uh, to multiple tenants by the room, I'd, I'd bank a shed load more money. So I started doing that. So, because <laughs> um, we now know those as HMOs, but I just called it renting by the room. I think I'd one of those. <laughs> It was called a bedsit in them days. I think. Yeah, that's another. That's another yeah. word. Bedsit. Yeah, bedsit. Yeah. So, so literally, what it is, you know, it was a, you know, three bedroom house, lounge converted into uh, front lounge uh, converted into a fourth bedroom, communal kitchen and um, and you know connected dining room. Yeah. So it's um, yeah, and um, uh, so um, did that. Took a break for a while. Then I've done a new build. Not um, not building it myself, but you know, being the developer type of thing. So I had a little stab at that. Now a commercial landlord, and um, but uh, and so so on the investment sorry on the investment side, that's what I've been doing. On the finance side, been in finance since 1992. Uh, the majority of that time as a as, as a mortgage broker. That's escalated to what I would call a finance broker. And what's the difference between that? A mortgage broker just does mortgages typically, or predominantly does mortgages, and a finance broker um, does a lot more, more often. 
and um, originally started off as a financial advisor and realized the time to get out of that was when I was telling people to invest their lump sum in, in the stock market, knowing that I wouldn't do anything like that myself. I'd stick it in property. I thought, I'm in the wrong game here. Yeah. So um, stopped doing that, but still stayed in finance, but again, got focused completely on, on property finance. And it's been brilliant, really, because for the last 20 odd years, I've married up the, the, the two fundamental interests in my life, you know, and I've um, become part of the property investor tribe, as I, as I like to call it. People, like, people call about tribes, don't they? they are. Yes, indeed. Property investor is very much my tribe, yep. you know, and um, when the last credit crunch hit, I mean, blimey, it was a bit of boom time, a boom time for investors, boom time for brokers before the credit crunch. You know, I mean, I was helping people buy properties with the same day refinance and some of them were buying five a week. Wow. wow. <laughs> Literally, yeah. Literally five a week. But wow. why wouldn't you if you if you weren't leaving any money in? Absolutely. Um, Do you know, it's interesting that I've been around property developments for many, many years. Hmm. Um, I became a chartered surveyor in 2002, I think it was. Mm. Uh, but I was involved as in estimating around the construction side and you know it never really occurred to me to to be involved in property investment myself no. when you're in a I suppose when you're in a corporate I came from a, I was in a corporate background for a long time yeah you get so focused so focused in on what your job is and mm. within the, that corporate environment and you're delivering projects for investors property developers and and, and developers mm. and do you know i never it wasn't even in my psyche to do it no. it was always no. you were just focused on, on on delivering and and i suppose that's the way it was and it and i think it it wasn't until probably a couple of years ago that i kind of stumbled into a property meet somewhere mm. and um and it all changed you know i thought yeah. crikey i've been on the edge of this and i've been right. had a blindfold on blinkers and i'm thinking wow yeah. you know it's it's amazing one of the things that were you talking about the tribe one of the things that struck me at the at the first time at the first meeting was how property people share information yeah and that was always something that you didn't do you know so well see now my take on that is that uh, if you come from the corporate world you're brought up in a culture of scarcity hmm. yeah so there's there's not enough to go around jobs, um, promotions, you know whatever you want to call it. Uh, there's not enough to go around. So, you know if you're if you're in the corporate world and your firm says right we've got a round of redundancies coming up, chaps and chaps chapesses, you're all thinking well it's going to be you before it's me. Mm, yeah. You know that's the natural mentality to protect yourself. So it's a bit of a culture shock when you come into property because the opposite applies it's a culture of abundance yeah born out of the simple fact simple logical fact that no one person can buy all the property there is mm, absolutely yeah. so th th there's no need to be guarded you know and have that scarcity mentality you can you can share openly with people because you know no one's really a threat to you mm. Yeah. I mean, I suppose if you if you want to operate solely in a village with about 100 houses and never go outside of it, then you probably would think differently. But then that is a scarcity mentality. But, um, you know, if you cast your net a bit wider than that, as most people do, yeah. then, um, you know, 
that uh, you know the world's your lobster, as um, Arthur Daly once said. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Memorably, yeah. It, it, it's a great community, a great crowd, and a great uh, yes. sector to be involved in. You sure. know, and even in the last couple of years, I've I've met some good good friends and good people, yeah. and um, you know, you can always share your knowledge and skills, expertise, mm. your adventures, that sort of thing. So, what would you um, so so for somebody starting out in property now today? which uh you know what what would be your your kind of initial advice to somebody that's thinking oh okay you know i have got a, a little bit of money to spend or they might not have money to spend but i'm kind of thinking that you know i've been to my i've been to a, a, a friend took me along to a property me you know this would be good you know I'm, I'm kind of on the first rung what would be your advice to somebody thinking about getting okay well a couple of couple of things really i think it's deciding what what your objectives and ambitions are that's the first thing you know so how far do you want to go in property and how big do you want to grow temper that by the fact that there's a very old saying that says you don't have to see the top of the staircase you just have to see the next step mm -hmm. so you might not say well i see myself you know owning 100 properties when you haven't actually got one yet but you should have some sort of scope of i think how much is too much, mm. you know? So, because that's gonna feed the the way that you go about manifesting that. And uh, so I think it's almost like you have a decision tree to work through, which is, you could describe it as a number of forks in the road and do you go left or do you go right? So, you know, one early decision to make is, do you wanna buy and sell or buy and hold? Because uh, some people might have an aversion to being a landlord. Yeah, yeah. Whether 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 they think it's a too big a pain in the ass. I don't know if I'm allowed to say ass, but uh, yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> We're disruptors uh, on this uh, on this on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, some people may have a, an aversion to tenants, but love property. Yeah. Um, so they would be, you know, buy, refurb and sell, or buy, convert, sell or buy land, build and sell. So they would go down that fork and the um, the landlord type mentality would go down a different fork. So yeah. that's a that's a very, um, excuse the plane flying by. Um, <laughs> that, that's, um, yeah, so that's a very early fork. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and of course you might want to do a bit of each. Mm. There's a strategy that says, you know, um, buy three, sell two, keep one. Yeah. You know, the, and, you know, <clears throat> I think the thing with property is that it, it's so varied that you can just literally almost make up what you want to do. Yeah. Good friend of mine, David Clouter, who's a very intelligent investor and sometime trainer, his mentor uh, that he learned from in his youth devised as an absolute minimum 150 ways to make money out of property. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, That's what makes it so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So there's, you know, there's layer upon layer. Of, it's like an onion, really, isn't it? You peel, you know, you, you peel off a layer and, and there's, you know, there's um, an imperceptible amount of number of layers um, still to go. So <clears throat> um, do you want to buy and sell or buy and hold is a very early um, decision. Yeah. And if you go down, oh, well, I want to buy and hold. Okay, so the next decision is, do you want to buy ready to rent or do you want to buy doer uppers? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Ready to rent is easy. 
because you just buy it, stick a tenant in, and away you go. Mm -hmm. The disadvantage with that is it's a voracious cash eater. So, you know, if you're putting 25% down, that eats up your cash like nothing else. Yeah. Unless you're, and unless you're starting from a very big cash pot as a starting point, if you're like most people that I see, you'll run out of cash way before you run out of ambition. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that, that can be said for any property investment, really. Yeah, no pretty much. how rich you are, you're going to yeah. run out of cash before you run out of ambition. Yeah. yeah. So if that's the case, then you need to wise up and understand that, that buying ready to rent has a very short lifespan. So buying doer-uppers is the way to get more bang for your buck, to use another phrase. In other words, to make your cash pot stretch further. So there's a, a phrase that's often used called momentum investing. Mm -hmm. And it's taking your cash pot, whatever size it is, and making sure that you structure deals so that you can pull all or most of that cash back out mm. in a relatively short period of time, i.e. months, not years, mm. to go again. Yeah. And so if you've got a pot of cash done, executed expertly, you can buy property after property after property with the same cash because it forms your deposit and possibly your um, refer money or conversion money for project yeah. after project. Mm. Not so easy to achieve in practice because you need some skill to be able to do that. But that really is, is that so momentum investing is another way to describe it. Um, you know, I've built up a brand over the last decade, uh, pretty much around that, which is called recycle your cash. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Very simply, because that's what you need to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, another acronym has come around in, in latter years, which is BRR buy, refurb, refinance, and someone's tacked a, a third R on there to make it buy, refurb, refinance, rent out. So, um, but I think the, the last R is probably a bit superfluous because, you know, the only reason you would refinance it is to rent it out. So it goes without saying, really. So um, BRR is, an, is another way of saying recycle your cash. So, yeah. you know, recycle your cash is really where most people get to if, if they've got any sort of ambition to, to grow a portfolio. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's just a case of getting um, conversant with the various aspects, aspect, aspects of what you need to do. And you learn very quickly that if you rely solely on mortgages, you're playing that game with one hand tied behind your back mm. and probably both legs tied together too. Yeah. So what would be, what would be the alternatives that people could look at other than uh, just a kind of standard mortgage uh, finance? So, you know, this boils down into the, into the, the, the creative finance field and you need to look at lenders that have a different view of the world to mortgage lenders. You know, mortgage lenders are basically income based is income based lending. So they focus on, people with a good credit record who never miss payments because they're trying to secure uninterrupted stream of monthly payments years into the future. 
So they want, and they want properties that are pretty much ready to rent. So they would allow you, uh, most lenders, buy to let lenders allow you 28 days with which to type up a property, um, but they expect it to be rented within 28 days. So and that gives you very little opportunity to recycle your cash. So the, 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 in terms of um, what you should focus on, it's the case of the worse it is, the better it is. Yeah. So the more that needs doing to it, the cheaper you should be able to buy it, and the more you should be able to uplift the, the end value exponentially. Yeah. You know, and a good rule of thumb on any doer-upper is for every pound of um, refurb money you spend, you should get two to three pounds of increased value. So, and that's the, that, that exponential uplift in value over spend is what gets you the ability to recycle your cash. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's where you focus on. And so the types of finance are are predominantly bridging and development finance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now at the mention of bridging, maybe half your readers have just fell off their chair. Yeah. Or, or, or reach for, reach for a glass of water, or maybe a stiff stiff brandy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so because it, its reputation precedes it, and it's entirely unwarranted. Mm. Yeah. There's a, a school of thought that predominates in the investor community, even amongst some solicitors. Amazingly, some among some mortgage brokers, and certainly amongst a lot of property trainers, and that is. Bridging finance is the last resort of the desperate investor. Yeah, I've heard that. And I'm quite comfortable with that. And the reason I'm comfortable with that is that I teach my students that it's the first choice of the intelligent investor. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So most people are not fearful about bridging because they've got an innate knowledge about it. They're fearful of its reputation. And there's a great acronym of fear, which is false expectations appearing real. Mm, absolutely. People are scared of the reputation of bridging mm. because they don't truly know it from the inside out. Sure. And, you know, the, the, the comparison I draw then is most of the population can drive a car. So they would have learned to drive a car at one point in their life, usually in their late teens. And there would have been a point where they would have sat behind the wheel of a car in earnest for the first time about to take their uh, first driving lesson and probably crapping themselves because because they suddenly realised they hadn't got a bloody clue how to drive a car. For, For most people, okay, you know, for, for some, you know, their dads would have taken them out on an airfield or something like that. But for the majority of people, you know, that first realisation that, you know, I'm about to be responsible for a machine that can kill someone if I don't get my act together, mm. and me too, possibly, you know, it is, is a serious, you know, uh, wake up. Yeah. Um, but you learn to drive, you pass your test, and over time, you become such an you know experienced driver that you actually drive on autopilot mm. yep. most of the time. You know, and I think everyone can can arrive somewhere and, and then they get out of the car and think, how the bloody hell did I get here? 
yep. because they've been thinking about everything, everything but driving on the way there. Mm. Um, because you drive on autopilot, you know, your unconscious mind drives, drives the car you know, because it's such an ingrained habit in you. And, and that's what happens over years. Okay. So, <clears throat> and, uh, but the parallel I draw is, okay, do, do, you, do you learn to drive by yourself? Of course not. You, you um, sit into your left in the UK, possibly the right in other countries. And I don't know how far your readership stretches, but... Um, actually, they're, they're, the, they're meant to be on the same side of the road as us, but they rarely take any notice of it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, but who's sitting to your left? Well, a driving instructor. Yeah. And so a driving instructor educates you on how to become adept to drive a car safely without injuring yourself or other people. Mm. Um, so on my um, training programs, you could call me, I'm your bridging instructor. Yeah. I, I think that's really important. You know, I, I've even found that on my own property uh, uh, journey is to have uh, mentors and coaches around you mm. be somebody who's going to be your bridging instructor, uh, someone like yourself, bridging instructor to be there uh, to, to help you learn the right way to do things rather than pick up bad habits if, if you don't have that kind of um, input or expertise around you you can pick up bad habits can't you which yeah. can land you in trouble right. yeah yeah and just like a driving instructor my primary aim is to is to keep my students safe yeah yeah absolutely um so in you know in terms of um not making mistakes in property because I can, you know, through my twin careers as a property investor first and a, um, uh, a finance broker second, I can see a lot of the pitfalls that more experienced uh, or less experienced sorry, people can't. Mm. You know, in fact, I had a swap some messages uh, today. Someone said, um, someone messaged me, said, I've got this property at auction and um, looked to get some bridging finance on it. And I said, Go, give me some numbers. And, um, so we, wrap, we we boiled it down, what it's going to cost him. And I said, how does that sound? So he said, yeah, okay. Um, of course, it's remembering all the things like the stamp duty, the valuation fees, the legal fees, and, and all that type of thing, and the agent's fees at the back end if you're selling it, or the refinance fees if you're remortgaging it. And then we worked that out, and I said, okay, so you're going to have, um, uh, you're going to leave, based on your figures, you're going to leave 23 grand in that deal. And you're not going to be able to get out again. How do you feel about that? Mm. So he's going to wait to think about that and he'll come back and say, well, that's okay because, you know, I've worked out the cash flow and, you know, it's going to have five bedrooms and I'm going to, you know, make X amount of month profit and get my money out in maybe a couple of years or, you know, you know, and I tend to find that is the real criteria is how much cash you're going to leave in and how long is it going to take you to get out? No, ideally, you'd like to get all your cash out on day one. Occasionally you do, more often you leave some in, mm. and then it's a case of well, how long is it going to take to get out? Usually, people would accept a year or two out of the positive rental cash flow, but probably not longer than that. Yeah. yeah. You know, and some of the deals that you look at, it's going to take them five, seven, ten years to get their cash out. Obviously, it's a bit of a bum deal, really, and they're the ones they tend not to do. Well, they tend not to do if they talk to me. They, they tend to do them and realise too late that they should. That's the one they should never have bought. Yeah. Um, without talking to me, so yeah, it's so, um, yeah, and and it's important to to be able to analyse those deals properly. Isn't yeah. It? 
you know, and it's horses for courses, isn't it? You know, I mean, I'm more involved on the development construction side of things yeah. quite often. And with contractors, for example, there's horses for courses. There's certain types of contractors for certain projects. Mm. And I suppose it's like it for finance as well. It's yeah. the right finance for the right project. Yeah. I mean, I've got a, a YouTube channel. I think you might have um, watched some of that. Um, yeah. Very easy. It's Kevin Wright Property. Um, yeah. So it's easy to find on there. Brilliant. Well worth a watch, by the way, listeners. Thank, thank you. But one of the... Um, <clears throat> uh, one of the, the most simple videos on there is the five types of bridging. Mm. So, you know, bridging is something that's complex. You, you, you go down a level and it actually is quite easy, but then you go down another level and it becomes complex again. Mm. And then you have to go down a further level again where it becomes easy again. So, so it, it, it sort of oscillates between the two, but a very simple um, way to understand bridging is there's probably only about five types of bridging known. And every bridge in every pro, a project would, would fit into one of those five types. So you've got a purchase bridge, a market value bridge, a refurb bridge, a done up value bridge and a cross collateral bridge. Yeah. And I, I bet there's a lot of listeners didn't actually realize there was five different types of bridging. No. I, I, I must admit, I didn't know that. I mean, I had, uh, I remember I bought a property March, must be March 2019, on bridging in an auction. Um, and I was advisor of a bridger. But I, it was a dilapidated property. It was uninhabitable, had problems with it. And the, the bridging wasn't really the right product because I think their, their risk profile was, they were too nervous about it. And, uh, you know, they were worried about things like wall ties and this and that. And then once we satisfied that, then they were worried about something else. And it clearly was a bit of a mismatch, you know. Yeah. So it was, I, I think initially we didn't have the right product for the type of property. It, it sounds like the wrong lender. Yeah. Really. So um, you just needed a, a, a bridger with a bit more of a, a, an open mind and, and a bit more of a venturous attitude. And most of them have. Yeah. They have, yeah. Well, what happened there is that we, after, uh, I think we had eight weeks to complete on that one. And after seven weeks of messing about, we, I, I went to a different bridger that was used to doing these types of property. Yeah. Thought with that within a few days. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, so, and I think that the real game changer that bridging enables is that it gets you into properties that otherwise would be the preserve of people with mountains of cash. So there are a number of properties on sale. It's a minority, clearly, a um, small minority, but there are a number of properties on sale on any of the, the channels that you want, right, move, Zoopla, whatever. And they're uh, not in a, in a state right now that's mortgageable. Hmm. Uh, for a variety of reasons, you know, it could be they, you know, they're not habitable in terms of no kitchen, no bathroom and uh, a whole host of other reasons. You know, the ones that your listeners would like if they're, if they're in the construction would be the ones with structural defects. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, even buyers with mountains of cash run away from structural defects mm. if they haven't got construction background. Guys with a construction background would have no problems at all. I always remember I trained a builder a couple of years ago, big bulk of a man. And we talked about this. He said, he, he said, I love them. 
He said, mm. he said, the only time I get worried is if the the crevice in a, in a property that that that's that's cracking. He said, if I can get my fist in it, then I know it's serious. <laughs> and I tell you, his fist <laughs> was about twice the size of mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what he said. He said, he said if, if my fist goes in the crevice, I know it's a serious problem. Anything less than that, mm. I, I'll deal with it. Yeah. So, you know, um, for your listeners, if, you, if you're if you thinking about doing this sort of thing, then structural defects are just a, a, an absolute winner. And I'll expand on that a bit more because I think it'd probably be useful. Yeah, it would. Um, yeah. So, so people, even relatively minor clack, cracks, the, the general public, even those with cash, are going to run a mile. Mm-hmm. So they're clearly unmortgageable because you're not going to get that. So who's going to buy them? Cash buyers. Now, the thing about bridging is it gets you into that cash buyer market. Now, two things happen with that. Cash buyers the world over never pay top dollar for anything mm-hmm. because yeah. money talks, yeah. as they say. And this is something that it transcends property, it transcends countries, and it transcends cultures. Yep. You go anywhere in the world, and if you wave a wad of cash at something, you'll get it cheaper. Mm-hmm. Yep. In, in, in almost every circumstance. Yep. Okay? So, bridging, get, because bridges will lend on any, any type of property, all they're interested in is, okay, it's, it's unmortgageable now, how are you going to put it right, and how are you going to pass back? They're not worried about the condition of it. All they, all they want to know is, you know, with your Bob the Builder hat on, can you fix it? Yep. <laughs> it's true. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So that's it. So now, so these properties with structural um, defects, probably more than most, are available at an advantageous price. Now, put yourself in the position of the owner of an unmortgageable property with structural defects. Mm. Yeah. You, you know that no one that's mortgage dependent is going to be able to come and buy it off you. Either because you just understood that or because you've tried and had three offers accepted, all of which have dropped out as soon as the survey's done. So they will have come to the conclusion it's unmortgageable. Now, put yourself in the mindset and the shoes of that property owner with structural defects. You'll have worked out the only people that can ever buy your property are cash buyers. Yep. And you know from your life experience what they're going to do to you. Mm. Yep. They're going to hammer you on the price. So the owner of a structural defect property is attuned to accepting below asking price offers to a greater degree in most cases than any other seller. Yep. Yep. And you know there in this thing there are two there are two known unknowns if you want to call them that. So you know, and I often say when I'm training, okay, if we took if we went out to your local high street uh, in normal times, uh, <laughs> um, and we stopped a hundred people uh, at the moment, we'd have to be there a long time to stop a hundred people. <laughs> yep. But but in normal times, and said, what do you know about bridging? The overwhelming response would be from people that actually know nothing about it, mm. have never used it, yep. would say, "Oh, that's expensive." Mm. That, that's it. You know, it's it's an it's a societal n- known unknown. Mm. 
And if you went out again with a different um, questionnaire on your clipboard and said, what's, what's the remedy for a property with structural defects, people that had never been near a construction site or any, any type of building knowledge would say, ah, oh, that needs underpinning. Hmm. Okay, now, um, and he, here's the rub, because with your construction background and knowledge, you would know that an, uh, a fair proportion, possibly the majority, of structural defects on a building can be rectified without going to the um, to the extent of underpinning it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So they can be they can be solved much more cheaply than the tens of thousands of pounds that people anticipate. That underpinning is going to cost. Mm-hmm. Yep. You just negotiate as if it does need underpinning. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People and, and you'll expect, get. Yeah, people expect structural repairs to be really expensive. Yeah. Um, and of course, as you say, there are many other remedies that you can use. Yeah. Um, so, so you you can negotiate on the basis that well, if, if I've got to underpin this, I'm I'm looking at forty or fifty grand. Yep. And you can actually fix it for a fraction of that. So they're they're good they're good properties to to look at if you've got a structural background and you know what you're doing and you've you've got a good uh, building team that know what they're doing. Absolutely right. So so um, you know anyone with any building knowledge, I'd always say to them, you know, look for the really bad stuff because you'll pick that up. In fact, one of my modules is called Fifty Percent Below Market Value. Yeah. Um, and there are certain things that you can pick up and it might not always be 50% um, below the asking price, but certainly in some cases it's, it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. You and know? if you can, if you can do, if you can do the structural repairs and you haven't got to do, and you're not overly ambitious regarding stripping the inside out so that mm. you're getting it back to a re within a reasonable cost, then you can, you know, you can get a really good return. Mm. Definitely. Uh, so, you know, my um, recycle your cash philosophy, if you like, is about uh, taking ordinary people with some money, not uh, n- not no money, but, but some money and giving them the knowledge that they can go for unmortgageable properties, use bridging finance as their way of funding it and therefore move into the cash buyer area of the market, which is which is not very heavily populated mm. and leave, leave the mass of properties with the small cosmetic refurbs to the hordes that come off of all the major training courses. Yeah. Yep. And they're all falling over um, each other to try and get a property, you know, and it, it's hard to get a bargain when 20 other people want to buy the same property that you do. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of ways that I, I sort of overarchingly describe what I do, and one is to say that it's counterintuitive. Bridges think counterintuitively to mortgage lenders in almost every respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I teach people to think counterintuitively to other investors. Mm. And I, I love to quote a phrase by James Kahn, um, the ex Dragon Dens guy um, Observe the masses, do the opposite. Do the opposite, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What a brilliant saying that is. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, so I amend that slightly and I say, observe the masses of property investors and mm. do the opposite. You're absolutely right. And do you know what? I think some of the mainstream property uh, training courses, uh, they, they do focus on that, that particular end of the market, don't they? With the, you know, just, just, just buying properties, maybe uh, uh, even the rent to rent market, the eight yeah the HMO that the, just a simple re, uh, redecoration yeah that, that kind of buy to let a single buy to let kind cosmetic of cosmetic refurb yeah. yeah and I think um, th that that's a good thing in a way I mean it has it's you know because it gets that it's that big pond which is really 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 um, densely overpopulated yeah so what we're kind of saying is look you know let's come over to this other pond if, yeah, because it's really what you're talking about is probably the next step up from there. You know, it's yeah, it, it is. Um, it is the next step up. The the, um, the choice that um, um, investors have got to make is whether they want to make that journey or just go straight. You know, straight and and step up yeah. or just go straight straight to the small pond. Yeah, and I like to say it's a small pond with a lock on the gate. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> you have to know. You have to know the key combination to get in yeah and you do absolutely it's each little step is is well each step is a big step in a way because mm. you, you you need to educate yourself around what the implications of that next step is because mm. there are different things that come into play there are uh, maybe a, there's there's bigger rewards but there's a little bit more risk so you need to have uh, know what you're doing so you need to have more people around you that have got the expertise mm and uh, people like yourself that are coaching in that area then mm. I, I think that's really important and then i suppose where we're looking you know where our our clients might sit would be the next step from there mm. which would be okay i'm looking now to do a 10 10 flat conversion yeah. or I'm, I'm looking at buying a plot of land and putting some houses or flats yeah. on there you know so it's a kind of that next step so again so you can go from there you can go from the the, the kind of um the starter buy to lets i suppose the starter in properties the kind of the rent to rent then the buy to let if, if you're really short of cash yeah if you're right. really short of cash you control property before you get into buying it and um, there's one other point actually i want to make for i think that might be relevant to your guys because if you're doing commercial to resi conversions yeah yes okay, big, bigger ones yes you know, then to get a commercial mortgage, mm -hmm. you have to have a tenanted income producing property. Yeah. Okay. So if you've got, let's say a block of offices, yeah, could be anything, but let's just pick that. It could be, it could be an, a, any number of, any type of commercial, but you've yep. got a block of offices. Yep. I don't know, maybe it's a four, four story, five story block of offices. Okay. So no prospective buyer is going to get a mortgage on that until they tenant it right okay so now you're back to the only people that can ever buy um vacant um commercial properties uh premises the cash buyers Buyers, yeah yeah so there again um unless if you haven't got hundreds of thousands of pounds in cash and you want to get into that sort of market bridging will get in get get into it for you you know bridging or development finance will typically lend you, let's say, um, 60 to 70% of the purchase price mm -hmm. and 100% of the conversion cost. Yeah. So all you need is a bit of cash on the way in. 
mm-hmm. and pretty much the rest of it is um is, is funded for you yeah one of the things i find that some people fall in the, into the trap of is underestimating the duration of the construction costs yep. and so they might be on bridging and of course uh, the bridging has a fixed period duration yeah. and then they're finding they, they find problems on site it's going to take longer you know so it's uh we were looking to refinance at a certain point in time and then the bridging runs out is there any advice that you could give to people that might find themselves in that situation yeah and there's a bit of comfort as well because um bridges try and head that off at the pass mm-hmm. uh, to, to, quite, to to quote an old um <laughs> saying. I love all these sayings. I'm making some notes here. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love all the old sayings. Yeah. Yeah. So they would ask you to, on a substantial conversion project, not a little cosmetic refer, but on a substantial conversion project, yep. which they are funding, they would ask you for a build cost and a build time schedule. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, they would then hand it over to their QS to, to validate it. And their QS would say, well, that's a load of balls. Um, you're never going to do it in that time frame for that cost. So we suggest you go away and work it out and rework your numbers. Because <clears throat> contrary to, mate, uh, you know, to what you may think, bridges don't want to snatch your house at the first or the, or the, the site at the first opportunity. Mm. What they want is for you to finish it and either sell it or refinance and give them their money back. Of course, yeah. You know, one of the biggest things is are you going to build it on time and are you going to build it on budget? Well, before they even give you any money, they want to see what your your um, idea is and then they'll validate it with a Q, with their QS and if necessary, they'll, they'll tell you to go away and revise it and say, you know, and uh, re- revise the time frame longer and the cost structure upwards because you're absolutely right. People tend not to overestimate they tend to us underestimate. Yes, absolutely. You know, there, there's a bit of realism injected at, at the very start to try and offset that problem before it occurs. But of course, you know, if you have a shutdown like we've had, you know, for the last uh, few weeks, no one could f- foresee that. Mm. So, you know, there is, you know, you should always build some contingency in, but, you know, there are, you know, un- uh, unforeseen contingencies that you couldn't possibly. Mm. I'm going to shut the window. Someone started drilling there. It's the gas man or someone decided it's a good idea to dig up the pavement today. Yeah, they. do you know what they do? They always know when I'm doing a podcast and then they <laughs> they start drilling. <laughs> yeah, so I like the fresh air, but I'll have, yeah. have to put up uh, without... I, I normally get the guy coming around trimming the hedges when, I, yeah. when I'm doing my podcast. Every time, normally. He's not that to, actually, I close the window today because normally he comes around and starts doing his hedge trimming you know or yeah. one of those blowers that blows the leaves everywhere you know yeah yeah so so yeah so you know those those type of deals and of course there's there's um, layers within that so often you'd buy something maybe with planning permission but not the planning permission you actually want to build out mm. yeah so you would you would buy it with bridging finance you would then apply for your planning permission and when you grant that, you would generally get an uplift in value, yep. which means you could, um, and that uplift in value, there's equity in the deal there, which 
counts to a development finance lender as your skin in the game. Yeah, absolutely. So you would then refinance the build uh, according to the plans that you you got past that you actually want to build on, and uh, and build up there, and you'd probably have not a lot of cash left in. You got a lot of equity left in. Yeah. But yeah. you you you'd massaged your cash out at a fairly yeah. early stage by um, by the uplift in planning. That's interesting. So are you saying that you were you could uh, you could initially purchase on bridging, yeah, and then refinance onto development onto yeah. development finance for the for the build with the uh, once you've received plan permission for the the, yeah, the increased in value yeah project yeah because even though you've put no extra cash in as far as the development for lenders concerned they just look at uh, at what you owe on the bridging and what the what the sites now work with the yeah. superior planning and conclude that you've got uh, you know uh, substantially more skin in the game yep okay that's interesting yeah. to know yeah yeah now interesting little hint i picked up on that because on my mentorship programs i have guest experts come along and we were talking about this on a um when we had a, a tax expert and he said now a good little thing to do is to if, if this is what you're going to do buy it and then get planning uplift the value and then build out he said um you can buy it in your personal names i mean not if it probably this is probably not if it's a multi-million pound mm. So, yeah. but if it's probably in the hundreds of thousands, yeah, and it could be more than one of you, if there's more than one of you in it, mm. you buy it, you buy it in your personal name or jointly in your personal names, yeah, with the bridging, you get the planning, and then you sell it to your limited company, mm. and exercise your annual capital gains tax allowance. Ah, excellent! That's a brilliant idea. Yeah. So. <laughs> So there's, a nice little, there's a nice little golden nugget there, Kevin. There you go. You see, yeah. there you go. These are the sort of things I pick up um, um, from the from the guest expert I, guest experts I um, I pull in. So so yeah, I mean you always you always intended to develop it in your limited company, but you're just making a tax gain, you know, and it's twelve thousand three hundred pounds, I think, is your yeah. Cap. So if you've got three or four people on the project, yeah, you, know, you can make a fifty thousand uplift by selling it to, to your SPV or limited company and just and just bank the, the, the tax-free profit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And actually, tax is a really big thing with property development. I mean, going back to what you said at the beginning, you know, where people need to decide whether they're going to look at building property to hold or to flip. Yeah. And they're completely different tax regimes, aren't they, between the two? Mm. So they're setting up a company or they're setting up a yeah a vehicle to 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 deliver those types of projects. They're going to be different, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. For tax purposes. So, um, so yeah, and and uh, I've got to say, I find it endlessly fascinating. Yeah, I do. It's amazing. They're, they're, and particularly around the tax, you know, and uh, it, it's it's fascinating. It's complex, and I think it can get complex. But I think that's the that's the interesting part about it. One it of the is. things I quite get in, I get interested in is where you've got uh, properties where you've got a history around the property and around the leases and around various options that you might might find that need to be untangled. You know, they're, they're sometimes they're properties that uh, most people or most developers don't want to touch, mm. and uh, they take a little bit more work. Mm. But it's fascinating. I looked at one which was a development in airspace in London in a project in London 
And when I look back on the title deeds, et cetera, and, and the tenants and, 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 and the people that have still kind of got some interest going back years, and the property goes back before the war, you know, and when you start to read through that and try and start to unravel it, it's so interesting because you've got the history there. <clears throat> but then once you can get to, once you can unravel that and then make a proposal to, to purchase that space, if you can get development on it, um, it's something that is, is kind of specialised and that most people probably wouldn't look at. Mm. That's right. So there's another aspect of, of, of property uh, Absolutely, that you yeah. can look at. You know. And actually from another guest expert in one of my mentorship sessions, um, which was a, a chartered town planner, we were talking about permitted development and he said there's a new class of, or a revision of a class of permitted development coming out, I think it's October, yeah. which is all around airspace. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So you can do you can do airspace on permitted development. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's really it is really an interesting area, particularly mm. in uh, around London. I mean, mm. it's um, you know there's 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 so much airspace, you know. Then you've got the right of light, the right to lights, uh, tenancy, different tenancy rights and agreements, mm. and charge holders and that kind of thing. But if you can unravel it, there are some really good opportunities to. Mm. To, to get some really good inter- returns on investment. Mm, yeah. One of the things we're looking at, because one of my one of my interests is cash flow around construction, mm. and you know sometimes you find developers don't know too much about the contractual, the contractor, the builder, the, the developer side of things, and 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 how that cult how that culture works. And many many developers will will and I I, I try. We kind of take a, a kind of a quasi construction management route whereby we'll manage the trades and the uh, uh, materials and trades directly. That, 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 that's a way in which to keep the costs down. But it does need some managing because you need to know how to package up the mm. project and you need to know the logistics about a project. Of course, the traditional way is just to employ a builder and allow the builder to manage all the sub trades. Yeah. I find that there are there are times when that that procurement route's appropriate. But what happens there is if you're developed from a developer perspective, you'll lose control of your supply chain at that point. Mm. You know, and it depends whether you, you feel the projects, uh, you're, you're happy to do that. But mm. I always feel that where the, where the money is in construction is in the supply chains. Mm. And from a PQS perspective, um, you know, you, you were quite often in, employed right at the beginning of a project to advise mm. on the construction costs and mm. development costs. Yeah, sure. And um, and so we're responsible for the cost plans and the budgeting, yet if the client goes on a tra- goes out on a traditional route to contractor, at that point in time, you suddenly lose control of the costs within the supply chain. Mm. Whereas, you know, we like to manage that. So we'll 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 generally uh, advise on a procurement route where the client can keep control of the cash. And many people, I think a lot of people don't realize where their cash goes when they pay the builder. And, mm. and I know of somebody, uh, well, I know of quite a few builders, that have, uh, developers that have lost money where they pay their builder, the builder goes bust before paying the supply chain, they've lost all that money. Mm. And someone I know lost a quarter of a million pound recently where the builder went bust. Mm. And so we're in an environment now where um, it's high risk of con- contractors and, su- mm. and suppliers going bust mm. because of the current situation. Mm. And there's a thing, I don't know whether they realise that sometimes when, when a developer pays a contractor, that money doesn't always stay in his project. 
So the way that contractors and suppliers work, they, they have several projects on the go and they're robbing Sorry. people to pay for. So you'll pay your contractor and that contractor's using your money to rush, run his cash flow on another project. Yeah. So if anything goes wrong, your money's no longer, you're not buying an asset with that money. Mm. Um, there's another thing called cash farming mm. that people don't realize. And so a contractor, not all contractors, but some contractors, particularly now, I think the next 12 months, 18 months is ripe, ripe for this, is that a contractor will be looking around for cash purchases on property. So he may have several contracts on the go. As soon as he gets paid, he'll pull that money into his operational costs, buy a property cash, refinance it, bring the money back into the project. Sometimes uh, that and that's one of the reasons why, why you get long payment terms and you find subcontractors complaining that not getting paid. And it's called cash farming. And so it happens a lot. And if there's a problem with liquidating that asset or refinancing that asset, or they've got problems on other projects, it could mean that A, the money's not coming back into your project if you're an investor, mm. or the contractor will go back. Carillion, is, I mean, Carillion's a high profile case. Sure. Now, one of the reasons Carillion went bust is cash farming that went drastically wrong. So we're using investments. So there's two levels of um, accounting. There's the operational accounting of a construction firm and there's a the project accounts. So what, what we're looking to do is develop, and we've developed a, a, a process whereby we link the lender, the lender finance up to the supply chain. Hmm. And so we, as a practice, would manage the cash flow Rather than the builder managing the cash flow, yeah. we'd manage the cash flow from the lender. So <clears throat> that goes into a project bank account, yeah. and then we manage it from there. So we make sure that uh, what what happens in this particular in our particular system is that rather than the investor and the contractor paying money down the line, they just transfer what we call a digital payment obligation or a promise down the line to pay, and then once that once all those funds are approved, we manage that finance and pay mm -hmm. from the bottom up. So we'll pay from the raw materials up to the tier fours, tier three, tier twos, tier ones. Mm -hmm. That way the money, the, 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 the developer knows that the money's left in the project. Mm -hmm. it, it stays in the project. It can't be farmed out. Mm -hmm. uh, the suppliers are not having to uh, rob Peter to pay Paul to, to pay for materials because we're paying, we're managing the materials for the investor. And I was speaking to a group of investors a couple of months ago and i mentioned about this in cash farming and what happens to their cash when they pay the builder and they were flabbergasted mm. most of them didn't know that that was the culture and that's the structure mm. and so from there i thought well we, we really need to do something about that so that's why we came up with a system where rather than the qs just managing the building cost uh, a peak from my background and i'm used to um working on behalf of the investment developer side mm. is actually we manage the cash right the way through the supply yeah. chain even yeah. if the contractor brings the supply chain yeah. so we we could we we could pay him a fee for bringing the supplier yeah. but we would manage the cost right the way through so so all, all he has to pay is his labor cost is that right and you pay his, yeah and he just pays his labor cost yeah and brings his expertise yeah not all contractors would agree to that no because that's they'll they'll make their money through the supply chain, yeah, but sure. I think there will be contractors out there that uh, breathe a sigh of relief actually, because they may be under cash flow uh, pressures, mm. you know, but they have the expertise. So you, you know, we're we're looking to agree overheads, profit, 
and a fee for their expertise, plus a fee for bringing a qualified supply chain and health and safety to the project. So they get a fee that's ring fenced. And some of them, some of the contractors I've spoken to are all on board with that because mm. it gives them opportunity to get more projects with clients that are running that scheme. And then there's the other camp. It's quite polarised because you get the camp that say, no, not for us, thanks. You know, but then there are contractors that say, yeah, I think it's a great idea. You know, particularly subcontractors that usually are on the, on, on, you know, they face the, um, the brunt of it, really, when, when the cash isn't flowing. So, so it's really my, I suppose my ambition is to speed up cash in construction because the faster the cash flows, mm -hmm. And I suppose from an economical, economic perspective, the faster cash flows, the, the, the faster wealth grows. Mm. So you, the quicker you get a return on your investment. And most of the mm. delays, I would say, in a construction project, delay, disruption, disputes. If you, if you, if you go to the, uh, the, 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 the lowest common denominator, it's around cash flow. Mm. The arguments start and it's cash flow. So, so independent cash flow management is something that I'm looking at. And I'm actually looking to speak to more lenders and um, financiers around this because it reduces their... Um, do you think, Kevin, uh, something like that? Because I know quite often uh, a financier or a lender or a bridging lender uh, would own, would, they'd employ their own monitoring surveyor, but they kind of, uh, where their level sits is, is kind of at a high level that they mm. don't see into the supply chain or they don't see how that cash is managing. No. Do, do you think some of them might be open to a, a, a processor system which gives them a dashboard and a, and a transparency of seeing where that cash goes in a project? I would think some would, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. You know, that may be something I can help you with. Yeah, oh, great. That's, that's really good. Yeah, I'd like to talk to you a bit more about that. Mm. And, uh, it's, it's really around an old culture you know, because I think the culture in construction goes back about 500 years because where that saying, we were talking about sayings earlier, weren't we? And the saying, robbing Peter to pay Paul yeah. actually comes from a construction project. Yeah, it I was where imagine. they were robbing St. Paul's, to St. Peter's uh, uh, Cathedral to pay for the construction of St. Paul's Cathedral. <laughs> so in 500 years, it hasn't changed that much, you know. No. But I'm on a mission to change that, that kind of slow payment culture. Yeah. Uh, which I think would probably uh, benefit uh, a lot of people. So, so how do you see things go going over the next, um, say, twelve months? Considering, you know, we've had uh, a slowdown in in uh, projects. Some developers have completely. Uh, some development projects have stopped. Some are starting yeah. up slowly. Um, and is now the time to consider getting into property, or do you think it should be a, there'll be a hiatus? What, what's your view on the way forward? Well. I think as we come out of lockdown in 2020, um, it seems clear we're going to be in a buyer's market rather than the seller's market. Yeah. Now, what some of my mentees are already reporting back to me is an increased number of half completed projects being put up for sale. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, these might be, and you know, I mean, it, this wasn't as a, at a sort of big commercial level or in particular this particular one. But one of them said that they just found a, a property that, you know, is a residential property, but it had been stripped back to brick and now put on the market. Mm. Now, that doesn't make sense from a seller's point of view mm. or an owner's point of view. That makes no sense whatsoever because you've just just ripped the value out of it. Yeah. 
And that's the worst time of all you could probably, you'd sell it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's either someone that's run out of funds or, or run out of nerve. Yeah. So, um, and you could find there's some, some bigger projects that come on the market where they've been started and then um, aborted. So and I think there's, so there's potentially an opportunity to pick up some, you know, some developments that, um, yeah. that need finishing off. You know, and there are bridges around. Not all bridges want to touch that, but because mm. there's a there's a bit yeah. of reluctance to say, well, you know, we don't know what mistakes have been made already. Yeah, and they would certainly get a QS in there to try and try and fish around and and get to the bottom of that. But there are certainly bridges and development lenders that would quite comfortably take on, you know, um, part built projects and have an appetite to um to fund them and you can and you know they you should be able to pick them up at a really competitive price yeah absolutely yeah what what i've found over the last couple of years looking at developments i've found that uh, the asking prices have been too high and i've been pipped at the post on developments where um you know the the, the construct you know i think people have understood uh you know when i look at the values that we've we've, we've been beaten at you know, the, uh, unbelievable, you know, the, the, I mean, some developments we've, we've been beaten by, you know, people have gone in at offered say 1.5 million where we're saying we can get to 800 K, you know, um, for, yeah. for, for a land, you know, they they've yeah. been underestimating the construction costs, but yeah. paying too much for the land. I think what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, and, and that, that translates from, you know, simple two up, two down, terrace properties right up to multi-million pound development if you can't work your numbers out yeah um and it, there's a lot of hope value goes on yeah uh, this is yeah. what we hope it will cost and this is what we yeah. hope it will be worth once we, we finish and you know they they, they you know, and I, I say it, you know sometimes it smacks of resolutely hammering a square peg into a round hole mm. yeah. yeah and and i also think some of the best deals are the ones you never buy you should um on those projects where you've been outbid um you, you've just given some another developer the opportunity to lose money on it absolutely yeah sometimes i say well good luck with that you know that's right good luck with that no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and yeah. um yeah i mean and bridges and development lenders again are aware of that and what they want to see as a benchmark is a net net profit after everything of 20 percent of gdv Absolutely. Yeah. This is one of the things I come up with when people say oh, I'm doing a development and because uh, yeah. people get quite emotion emotionally involved at the beginning. Don't they? That's right. Oh, we found this deal and it's going to no, get emotionally involved with the profit. They do. Yeah. And then you kind of say, well, look, you know, the way you need to structure this is not how you want to structure it. It's how your lender wants to structure it. How he's what he's what the monitoring surveyor is going to be want, want to look for. So when we do when we prepare the, the numbers and the programs, we say, look, this is this is how we we need to do it for the monitoring surveyor because we know what he's going to ask you. We yeah, know so. what he's going to say because he's protecting the risk yeah. exposure of the lender. And, and you're quite right. You have to leave that 20, 25% profit margin in, not for them, because they're going, oh, yeah, 8%, we're still making a profit. No, you can't go in no. at 8%. You have to make sure you've got the margins in that your lenders want. Yeah. And because what lenders see is that anything less than 20, when when the unexpected uh, costs and and obstacles that, that you didn't anticipate come in, your 20%, you know, drops down to 15%. And if he was on 15%, it drops down to 10% and 
that they notice a waning of enthusiasm as your profit margin gets smaller at the yeah. back end of a build. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so the best way they can do with that is to all the ones with skinny profits is kick them out. Absolutely. But it's been wonderful speaking to you. Yeah. And uh, is there any, uh, how can people get hold of you and contact you? About <clears throat> yeah. A um, couple of ways. I mean, simple ways go on to Facebook, look at Kevin Wright, property finance expert. You can always message me on there. Um, that's a simple way to do it. You can go on one of my websites, um, which is um, recycleyourcash.co.uk. You can contact me through there and I'll pick up any messages that come through there. Um, so, you know, there's sort of two easy ways really to, 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 to get hold of me. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much, Kevin. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a great listening to you. And um, I'm, sure my, I'm sure the listeners will, will, will really appreciate it. There was a few golden nuggets in there. And um, I look forward to seeing you soon. And um, thanks very much. So this was the Construction Cashflow Show. Thanks for listening. This was the Construction Cashflow Show with Stuart Davidson. Thank you for listening. And remember, the faster cash flows, the faster wealth grows. <laughs>